live with our 207th episode of Absolute Absec. I'm Ken Johnson at CK Tricky on Twitter, joined by my co-host Seth Law at Seth Law on Twitter. Seth, say hi. Hey, everyone. Welcome back. I know it's been a couple of weeks since Ken and I were live, since we posted an episode. We're excited to be here. We've had some live things going on. There's a lot to catch up on, a lot to do, um, or to you know, just review today. We've got articles upon articles upon articles. I doubt we're going to get to them all just based on how we usually operate. Um, As far as upcoming events, if you are looking for secure code review training, DEFCON is the next public course that we will be offering. Um, That's in August, um, at least that we currently have on our calendars. There might be some other stuff that pops up over the summer earlier than August, but I will post the link, uh, training dot defcon.org hold on i had it up and then i didn't copy and paste it properly um training.defcon.org for the las vegas trainings we will be involved in other trainings with defcon over the course of this year in multiple different locations so if you're interested in secure code review jump in there or let us know i mean we're we're more than open to hosting or applying at other conferences to teach this course And yeah, would love to do it. Um, As far as um, other things that are going on, I will actually be in Madrid in about a week and a half at Cybertracks. Got invited to speak there. Um, So I'm getting on planes and flying around and, you know, just, you know, we'll do a, you know, just a talk at that one, not doing a training that one when we didn't. yeah, they don't do trainings at that conference. Anyway, so Cybertrax in Madrid, um, if you're going to be there, let me know. Um, we'll have some Absolute AppSec swag with me. Uh, would love to hook up and yeah, go go out and have drinks and yeah, enjoy local culture, that kind of thing. Uh, Ken, any other places? Like where else are you going to be coming up? You're muted. Oh, yeah. But that's that's what you want to do when you're on a podcast. Just mute yourself. Uh, no, that's awesome about Spain, man. Didn't know you're going there. That's that's cool. Um, Madrid is a lot of fun, so you should have a good time. Um, yeah. No, 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 nowhere. I'm traveling. Uh, thankfully, at the moment, um, that was a lot of travel. So just enjoying a few weeks of downtime. Um, did want to announce that my company or James Wicket and I's company, uh, Dry Run Security, had our official launch today. I'll post a link here in a moment. Um, but yeah, I'm just really stoked because we, uh, we're we going into uh, private beta. And, uh, you know, it, it, I've been talk, talking and thinking and kind of cultivating this idea with James. But over just like years of practicing, we'll say, uh, the, the, the concept of contextual security analysis, meaning, you know, just using a scanner as a control point, uh, it's not enough. So anyways... Um, you know, we launched a company to to address this. Uh, like I said, we went live today uh, or launched today. So I'll again, I'll post a link. But I'm yeah, man, I'm stoked. I really am. yeah. We're I'm excited to time. see what you're gonna yeah. Well, I'm excited to see what you guys are coming up with and what you're generating because I I mean I know from a consulting perspective and you know obviously we've been in the industry so we've had a lot of discussions and you know I probably have more knowledge of what you're working on. But from a consulting perspective, the amount of, you know, contextual analysis that we end up doing because there isn't tools that are out there that actually help us with that. Um, and the amount of time that we spend or we see clients spend on that sort of stuff, right? Um, it's definitely an area ripe for improvement. So excited to see what it is. And yeah, go ahead, post the link. Let us know yeah. how things go. Yeah. If I can pull it up, my computer is going. This is so sad. Like I've been so busy. I have this uh, M1 Mac, right? Um, that this on an M1 Mac that I'm on, and I just need to load it up. And like, I'm literally just always using my machine so much that like, I just like haven't had found the time to like convert over to the other machine. Anyways, all that to say, it's like really slow going to get these links. Um, but here is sort of the tweet about it. Um, and uh, yeah, so anyways, just excited. I'll, I'll explain more about contextual security analysis as time goes on. But, you know, you can think of it as collecting a, a lot of data points to, to determine where risk lies in your ships so that you can actually know where to 
place your efforts versus just yeah. you know, kind of like hoping that your security champions might catch something passing through or hoping that your team might get pinged on it um, or that maybe a scanner finds something potentially. Yeah. It's just well, sort of just not enough, right? So that's Yeah, totally. Right? And I mean, we've had this discussion multiple times from a scanning perspective, right? From a tooling perspective is the amount of false positives, right? There's a reason that we have a problem with static analysis tools or we've we don't right, rely on them heavily. And it's basically that the missing context that's there, right? Um, yeah. How many times do we see MD5, right? Being pulled up as a finding for like, oh, and it's not even being used in a security context. That kind of thing is, I mean, we spend, I spend, I've spent way too much time over the course of my career actually trying to identify that stuff. So awesome to hear. Awesome to see. I did post the blog. Uh, entry can i found it from try ah, thank you so, yep oh you did okay okay so cool i'm trying um to... yeah just yeah. very slow it seems like today um with my machine so anyways yeah no worries cool, cool. we got a lot to get into it's gonna be a busy yeah. podcast episode that's for sure yeah where do you want to start um like there's that cookie analysis stuff right or the cookie bugs um, it was interesting research article, or if we want to talk about attacks against, uh, package management managers, um, and other, I, I don't know, like, where do you want to start? What, what piques your interest most right now? Ooh, um, yeah, we could start with, uh, let's start with like the ecosystem being attacked, maybe like the PyPy or the VS code extensions. Either one of those yeah. should be, uh, fairly interesting to dig into. Oh, oh, thanks, thanks, Brian. Brian Brian's uh, CEO of Open Context. It's a great company. Uh, definitely look into it. Um, anyway, sorry. So, yes. Um, cool. Okay. So I can yeah. again. Super slow. <laughs> I'll, I'll bring up the. Uh, uh, we'll talk about PyPy, right? PyPy, yes. whatever you want to call it. Um, and. I know we talked about this recently, right? Um, with NPM, the number of packages that are in NPM that exploded there for about a month because there was a drive. It looked like it was some sort of marketing drive. Like, you know, uh, people were just creating packages to look like up their search engine optimization almost, right? Um, but, it, you know, we're seeing definitely an increase in the amount of attacks against um against these package repositories these package managers right uh and it makes sense right like we've we've talked about this for years how these are weak points in the the overall code pipeline the you know infrastructure pipeline for actually pushing things out right um and it's it it it's full fulfillment of those prophecies or of those expectations that we've had for a number of years. So in this case, right, um, there was, uh, yeah, let's see what it is, right? Um, they, they disabled the ability for users to sign up and upload new packages because of the volume of malicious users and projects being created. Um, and especially with multiple PyPI administrators on leave, right? Uh, it makes you wonder how big that team actually is. Um, and I mean, if you look at module counts, um, that's what I was just going to do. Modulecounts.com, I believe it is. Maybe that's wrong. Oh, yeah. Um, oh, I had this uh, bookmarked. Hold on, let me see. Yeah, it's just taking a minute to pull up. There we go. Yeah. I mean, obviously, like you see the big increase in NPM there. The, it was what, April time frame. But if we drop that off, um, Maven's bigger, but PyPy is just below Maven. But it doesn't look like it's been anything that crazy from PyPy recently. Um, but they're still looking at 200 packages a day. They're, you know, that are, that are dropping in there, but it probably means that the number of new packages that were being pushed out on a daily basis were, was requiring more actual analysis. And that's why they temporarily disabled the ability to push new packages. Um, yeah. I mean, yeah. and all of these are popular targets, right? Like, 
active malware, right? There's multiple different places. Uh, I mean, the, the article itself references some stuff out of NPM, right? Like that are dropping Trojans and other things like that. Uh, but I would be interested to see what people are pushing into PyPy, right? Like from a, you know, are they trying to, like what the malicious packages are actually doing? I mean, that's just more out of my curiosity. Like what, I wonder what, what is, what's being attempted there? I, I don't know. What are your thoughts? I, I'm kind of rambling across it. Yeah, let me um, share my screen and then then I can give my thoughts a little bit more clearly here. So um, let's go present. There we go. All right. um, and break this off into another tab. Here we go. Okay, should see it. Oh, right. Wrong one. But you know what? It's fine. I'll just move this tab into this. And you should. Can you see module counts? No. Nope. Are you still seeing Python? Yeah, I'm still seeing Python. There we go. Cool. Now we can see module counts. Yep. So like if you look at it, there's not, you know, statistically or uh, numerically any kind of huge jump. Um, it's pretty. It's not that like it's not significant enough to be like. Over the last seven days, it's just been insane, right? Yeah, it's going, there's like upward trend, but it's nothing that's like, yeah, just crazy, crazy bad. Um, having said that, or with that information in mind, what I think is happening is there, there must have been other indicators. It probably wasn't the same as, I guess what I'm saying is it probably wasn't quite the same as NPM that had like this massive amount of... Um, of packages being uploaded, it might be more of um, other markers for uh, success, basically a, a compromise and successful takeover of accounts. Basically, there might be actual successful ATOs occurring. Um, it might just be that some of this stuff is a, a little bit above the capabilities of what they had in place to prevent it at the time. And so they took a precaution and it may not have been about the actual number of packages being uploaded. I don't know if that makes any sense, but that—that's what I think. Is it's, just, it's not like it's not like a crazy amount of malicious things being uploaded. Um, yeah, my guess. Yeah, which is, I mean, yeah, I think that's what I was trying to say. Is that it doesn't look like it was a you know that same sort of npm issue that we saw before, but maybe it's just an increase in the number of packages that they have to analyze because yeah. they do look malicious, right? So um, there's, you know, there's a finite number of people behind any of these package managers that can actually analyze, look at a code base. Um, and you know, I know they automate things, like they automate some of the analysis to see if a package is reaching out to, you know, dangerous places or doing things that were probably, are probably unintentional or malicious. Like, um, so like, any of those that jump into that pipeline just means it's more, it's more work for the team behind the scenes to actually get through those packages and accept or deny them. So, yeah, um, yeah, exactly. That, that's, that's, that's right. I think that there's not, there's, there's probably just mechanisms that can't handle what was going on in the background. And so just a way to stem the bleeding. Yep. Yep. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. And well, and that, that brings us to the VS code one. Right. And I, again, I, we're going to see more and more of this, right. There's all of these different mechanisms for extensions, for um, packages to be installed within the context of different applications that run on your devices, on your systems, on your CI/CD pipeline, on um, you know your developer workstations, and anything that has the ability to actually actually execute code is a potential avenue for exploitation and, you know, installation of Trojans, data stealing, like any malicious action, right? So, you know, it's no longer that, you know, it's easy for someone to just go, you know, email out a bunch of links and catch people. I think, I think the attackers themselves are getting more savvy, but they also want into more sensitive data, right? So, you know, you think of large organizations or large malicious, malicious organizations, nation state actors, um, they probably don't care as much about the consumer level exploitation as they do. We want to look at specific organizations. And so we're going to start to, 
we're going to start to attack those watering holes. Like these are all watering hole attacks. If you go back to, you know, the sixties again, you know, uh, Crocs and socks of uh, security. Um, but sixties, the, the, yeah, something like that. Right. Well, you go read some of those papers, man. I, you know, I have some, if you want to like talk about security and like how it hasn't changed speaking of which that's what my, my talks about, you know, for cyber tracks. And that's the one I'm starting to post. Um, yeah. But, um, so what am I going with this? Okay, so these are all water. I threw you attacks. off, sorry. <laughs> They're water hole, oh the water, watering hole attacks water from the 60s with attacks. Crocs and socks. Yeah, with Crocs yes. and socks. And I have, we have new, uh, we have new snicker, stickers too. So, sorry. Um, yes, so watering hole attacks. These are all watering hole attacks. Nation state actors or more sophisticated attackers want access to large organizations, sensitive data that probably isn't on, you know, uh, you know, normal consumer level machines. And in order to get that access, they're looking at what those computers are actually doing and what those organizations, like how they build code, right? Like those sophisticated attacks will use things like malicious, like VS code, VS code, code plugins. If I can take over a popular VS code plugin, there are, you know, there's millions of developers that are using that in sensitive organizations, in sensitive places that give me access to source code and other things that are, it's, it's a gold mine is basically what it boils down to, which makes me also wonder what they're doing with that data when they get it, right? Um, you know, I know as a, you know, as an engineer, you're probably, you know, the same way. I know I'd be feeding this stuff into Elasticsearch, right, into AI models, into other places behind the scenes. And I know some of it shows up on the deep web for sure. But what worries me is what doesn't show up there. Like the actors that don't actually post that data, that don't actually push it out. And we just don't know about it because, you know, out of, you know, these malicious VS code extensions or what PyPy is actually finding for every, every malicious package, every malicious extension that we find, there's probably at least one or two that we don't. Yeah. Sad to say, right? But that's that's the case. There are techniques that malicious users or malicious actors use that we probably haven't detected yet. For sure it's a cat and mouse game, but yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. I mean, you know, that, and that, that goes right. back to like what are you what protections do you take in what put put into place given what things you're trying to protect and what resources you have at your disposal. Yeah. To uh well, and, that. yeah. It's all that blast radius. Okay, what happens? Like we we can no longer assume no compromise. And this goes for your applications as well as what you're building when you're talking to developers. You shouldn't expect that your application is never going to get compromised. Right? Uh, that that that's just not realistic in today's environment. So what do you do to number one? protect against it. Number two, detect when something goes wrong. How do you respond to it? How long does it take you to respond to it? Are you logging? Are you auditing the right information to make sure that you know when something goes wrong with your application um, and when compromise potentially has happened? Um, If we don't have that sort of data, if we don't have those sort of actions in place, that sort of process, uh, there, that's when stuff lives for six months, a year, whatever else it is. Um, and that actually goes back. There was a Wired article. Oh, dang it! Now I'm pulling up stuff that we didn't we didn't talk about, right? Well, um, and I I will say, um, Larry Leisure. I was gonna say, yeah. So Larry uh, um, mentions uh, potential fund for IDE plugins to introduce promising code. We are gonna talk about malicious plugins, but kind of makes me think about, you know, a. Uh, it just made me think of like kind of sparked an idea of like a, a malicious plugin that kind of, uh, you know, um, acts like a co-pilot, but instead introduces like super vulnerable code. Anyways. Um, cool. Yeah. Sorry. What were you pulling up? I, I'm finding it. There was a really good long form article and it was a couple of weeks ago. Um, Oh, uh, and it, it Mandian. Okay. Untold story of the boldest supply chain hack ever. Right. Um, and so this is, um, it actually, um, is reporting. Let me post it here. 
Uh, it's reporting on uh, what the the solar winds hack from a couple of years ago, right? Or whenever that actually happened, still I say a couple still of years. Still feels fresh. Yeah, I know it still feels pretty fresh. But these guys actually talked to Mandiant and the DoD, and do it's a long form article. It'll take a little bit to actually get through. Um, but it's super interesting on how they actually detected it and how long the actors had access to solar winds before they started to do things and what they actually, I mean, it all goes back to supply chain, right? Um, and, and solar winds. Now it's been a little while since I read this. So I'm like, you know, dropping into it. Um, Wow. scanning through the article but like i said it's long form it'll take a little bit to get through so we probably don't want to like read through it on the um no definitely not um yeah it is a very long article yeah yeah but what's the tldr uh... tldr is they compromised the build system they inserted a, inserted a back door into solar winds and waited until that package was deployed to multiple sensitive different places right the yep. targets that they wanted right. it to be yep and so it wasn't even like it, the the build server that had been compromised the code had been inserted they were very intelligent about how they went about it like it was even documented um like very like in a manner that was similar to the developers themselves um, and then, you know, hidden in like a binary blob inside of one of the posts, like as they as they pushed it across. So it was very, very difficult to detect because they had done real analysis of the developers. It wasn't just drive by. This was definitely very much a pre-planned rollout. And they were lucky to catch it in the way that they did. Right. Like there was some weird stuff that went on, but they were lucky to catch it, basically. So give that one a read. I mean, it's definitely worth the, you know, the 15, 20 minute read on it um, because it, it'll give you some ideas on, OK, what is it that we need to look for behind the scenes? How would we actually detect that from a build server perspective? Right? Um, if something is compromised, if my application is getting like strange, you know, signatures or whatever out of it, because it was a signed binary, right? Like they inserted themselves into that process before it was actually deployed. Yeah, Larry um, mentions that. Um, yeah, I remember the story. It's been a while, but uh, <laughs> yeah, well, the story. I remember living through that. Um, also, some follow on denials of software uh, due to them being owned by solar winds but uh during change control but uh anyways yeah i mean i guess we could probably post the next article too and just roll right into it i mean this kind of all is related really um let's post okay. the malicious code extensions um just oh. another way to attack develop and you know like yeah take a step back for a second and zoom out of all of this think about what it's like to be a developer these days for real yeah, it sucks, man. Like it's hard, and I, I speak from all I do is write code all day long, right? Every day, and man, it's tough, right? You're uh, you have a lot of considerations, um, so many considerations in the way that you write things, which features you're going to focus on, product desires, um, et cetera, et cetera, bugs, uh, trade offs, um, you know, all all of the issues that you work through, uh, just making things work. I know a lot of people, most people who watch this podcast have written some level of code and struggled and, you know, uh, hit their head against their, against the wall and, and uh, yeah, just sort of like uh, had to troubleshoot these things and feel that frustration and overcome those problems. Um, so then you take all of that that you go through, then you say, all right, by the way, also like your extensions might attack you. Your packages might attack you. You may do nothing wrong at all. Your build system might just be compromised and token stolen. Um, so the amount of considerations that go, goes into, or the amount of consideration that an engineer has to take into account when they're just like building something these days, I feel like it's uh, quite a quite a quite a bit, quite a quite a cognitive load. And then you've got things like uh, ChatGPT, right, um, and Copilot and things like that that are meant to help, but then there's questions of, is that actually, you know, uh, helping or hurting? And anyways, I, I say all this just because it's been in my mind, like, man, it is hard to be an engineer these days. Uh, 
I'm not saying it was ever easy, but uh, I feel like there's a lot expected of a developer these days. Yeah. Anyways, going back to the extensions, I don't know if you want to give the TLDRs as I've been ranting. Yeah. Um, so realistically, Checkpoint does analysis here of um, malicious, like malicious extensions that they've seen in in VS Code, right? So you know, nothing gets spared. They talk about a Java. Um, a Java extension that says it's supposed to make, you know, Java look prettier, whatever it is in the NVS code. Same with uh, NPM or Darkula Dark, right? Like, and most of these are just attempting to still private data, right? Um, Yeah, some of them do shell injection, Python VS code, um, actually creating um, code like on the fly, to exploit and still, yeah, still data, right? Like, and I, I mean, the biggest thing is that they're, you know, if you look at the number of times that these have been installed, some of them are like thousands. They're, in, you know, 45,000 different installs for the, the Darkula Dark, the one that actually, you know, is posting. Yeah, I, I mean, at this point, it doesn't look like it's, data length, right? Like what they actually post there is information about the system itself. So maybe they're, you know, they've got more that they're trying to do with those, but at the very least it's pushing data that you would not want to a malicious location, right? Yeah, but yeah, tens of thousands, right? Like I, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm with you as far as like the developers go, right? Like what they actually have to have to be worried about because they view they view those IDE tools, those IDE extensions, and even the package managers to some extent, although they're learning not to, they view them as trusted sources of data, trusted sources of applications to help them generate code, right? Um, yeah, I mean, you know, and well, before I dig into that, I will say it, it out of 50,000, roughly, they said like 50,000 extensions that are on the marketplace. It was only a few that were malicious. So it's not like uh-huh. it's a widespread issue. But when it was an issue, it was installed in like a lot of places, at least in that one case. Um, yeah. So, and yeah, it's like, man, I didn't, I actually read through this and uh, kind of glossed over that whole um, Python VS code bit. But man, that is, that is super crazy. That's, that's exactly what I was kind of thinking about earlier when I like took a pause when, when Larry was, uh, um, I mean, this one's just straight out injecting, not recommending, but in any case, it's still like, and it's interesting how the one, um, just looks for common file paths, like, uh, under app data to like steal databases from your, basically your browser, your discord. So all that's pretty cool. I mean, not cool for the people that have it stolen, but you know, whatever. It's an interesting attack, but, uh, just straight out injecting malicious code is, is pretty insane. Um, but yeah, it's funny when you look at, cause I was thinking about it too, like with engineers, you, you also, I don't know about you, but when I've done training with engineering and I've, um, just generally interacted with engineers, it's interesting how their like software engineers specifically their, their idea of like what they should be securing and what security is, um, really doesn't necessarily often align with what I look at when I think you're a programmer, like you should be concerned with code security. And then you find that they're, you know, basically getting advice from many sources. I don't know. Maybe it's like their third party consultants. Maybe it's like, I don't know, some talk they watch. Maybe they just went on YouTube because they were interested in like, how do I secure my environment? And it's just most of the time the focus is like completely wrong. Um, and that's, I don't think it's their fault. I think it's that, I don't know, it, who knows? We could sit here and we could probably talk for three hours about how the industry has pushed this, that, and the other for various reasons and how that probably impacted. Uh, but yeah, I just, I don't know, man. Like it's usually like uh, if, if, if code security is usually uh, top of mind, it's typically like, are my dependencies uh, secure and up to date? Um, because I think, this is definitely a case with supply chain attacks. Like it's been pumped very heavily by the industry. So that's like their number one concern. Usually are their builds secure, which is reasonable for sure, but it's not top of mind when I think of secure code. Right. Um, 
and and or encryption just being interested generally in like encryption slash hashing but you know crypt cryptography we'll say um and it's like man there's like so many other issues like day-to-day -day that actually impact development um and that seems to i don't know like i said we could talk maybe it's the cbd tra cbt training cbd the cbd training, the cbt <laughs> training that what kind of training are you taking are over there ken <laughs> i know right we, we have very relaxed engineers um no but uh yeah, I, I don't know, man. It's, it, who knows? We could, like I said, we could pontificate on the reasons why, but it's, it is interesting that it, it, it's interesting because you have people that actually want to learn about, or like want to do the right thing, want to introduce security, but don't like necessarily know how, even though we have all this, all these resources and all these organizations and anyway. Yeah. Anyways. Well, I, I mean, I think it all, okay. I, you know, I don't know, like, if I want to do, like, a full hot take on this, right? But, um, you know, my my view on it is that we've always searched, and the and business in general has always searched for this, like, um, for this silver bullet that solves the security issue, right? We're getting better at realizing that that's never going to be the case. But, you know, if I look over the course of my career, like, first getting onto the internet, um and, you know, first coding, doing everything there, there was definitely this, well, security is just like put a firewall in place, right? That'll protect us. And um, managers, like upper, up, you know, executives of different businesses had this, you know, feeling that, oh, okay, you know, that that's basically it. I, if, if there's a problem with security, I just go out and buy a product that solves it for me and I move on. And there was never a real discussion about threat and about the risks that was associated with different business activities being online, like, you know, serving up data, like processing data, like there was never a true discussion on risk. And so even though we're training developers, we're training people on, on thinking about the threats that are involved with building, building applications, putting them online, as long as management and the business leaders don't understand the risks that are involved we're never going to get there we're never going to have a, a true like security process in place and that's where we start to fall down right like it's this kind of miscommunication or misunderstanding of what security actually is as opposed to hey i just have it's a point solution as long as i like spend you know this amount of money a year that we're going to be totally secure right I, yeah, that's that's interesting. Yeah, because it's probably yeah, you're right. It's influenced by wherever the engineer is working out of or has worked out of in the past and who was running probably very likely whoever was running security at that time. So yeah. and, and plus outside influences and a mixture of influences for sure, but absolutely going to come from like the people you trust that are paid and hired and professional, you know, security people. Security is also like such an overloaded term too. I mean, um, that's the whole other ball of wax, which we don't have to get into and probably shouldn't, but in any case, it's an overloaded term. So, you know, when I say security, what does security mean to you? Um, it, that's going to, even by, even if you put four AppSec people in a room, I guarantee you that you're going to have different answers. Uh, so it's yeah. no surprise that, um, engineers also have different answers for what they should actually be caring about. Yeah. Um, well, I did also want to mention something because I, I wanted to disagree with you a little bit, actually. Okay. I, although Go it's not it. really a it's not really a disagreement. But anyways, you said you think the industry is getting better at at saying, you know, hey, there is no such thing, or at least recognizing there's no such thing as a silver bullet. But, and I do think, I, and so on that point, I think overall, yes, practitioners have agreed that they uh, have to buy, unfortunately, or build. Uh, unfortunately, it's different solutions for different problems and kind of put them together and, and build out the things they need individually. Having said that, there is this trend I've seen in newsletters on Twitter, thought leadering, um, where people are saying, well, you know, budgets are shrinking. There's going to be more uh, people want simplification of their uh, tool ecosystem, which does make sense given when you go into like yeah, sure. If you go to like a 30 person company, it was different. But if you're going into most like, you know, we'll say large enterprise style businesses, you're going to have 
a crazy amount of different tools with crazy amounts of different contracts. And I get it. I get why there's like this desire to um, pare down, to slim out your uh, all, all these different tools. But um, there has been a push on that recently, like I said. So uh, I think the there's a recognition that there is no such thing and there won't be such a uh, such thing as a silver bullet. And at the same time, I think that people are advocating now to like, try and slim down your tool set and be, and try to get tools that do multiple things, um, you know, versus having a single purpose tool. Yeah. I have yeah. no idea if it's worth buying sonar dev edition. Sonar cube. Yeah. We haven't yeah. looked at that. So I, we'd have but to look at we can it. Get, yeah. We can ask. I know somebody who has worked with it and I'm sure you do too. So we can ask. Yep. Yeah, uh, Gigabin, that's probably worth jumping into Slack to actually ask that question because there's going to be people that have actually have have used that on a day-to-day -day basis. That isn't necessarily one that we've done, that Ken or I have, have used. Um, uh, yeah, as far as like slimming down, right, like reducing budgets, I, I get that. I, I think where I was going was there was more like recognition that security is not just a, a single it's not solved. It's never going to be solved. Right. It's like development. Okay. It's never going to be solved. Um, I still do run into organizations where they just have never taken it into account. Right. Like recently, you know, running into, you know, talking with the developers at a specific organization and they're telling us that, well, the way that they had done their development 15 years ago was basically to build these different environments and deploy them into you know into their production environment and then they never touch them again right because people depend it, on 15 them. years 15 years so they're running like linux packages and things like that that 15 plus years out of date you know what i mean no and, yeah surely no <laughs> i wish i was joking and i i mean i haven't Has come hardware been the hardware hasn't been touched either I, I mean, I believe the hardware has been touched, but since they had all these packages and containers that they had built out that were serving production customers and they didn't want to, they didn't want it to affect those, that production pipeline of, uh, you know, from a business perspective, they still live. Right. Dang. Um, and so, yeah, like, I was thinking as a security person didn't survive, yeah, which means that they're running these like low virtualized yeah. Yeah. That's not going to like what, what it needed for resources before versus what it needs now. I mean, it's probably like a super overpowered, not to digress, but that's just interesting to me that you probably have some serious hardware running some pretty low cost software. Well, anyways. All right. Yes. It's just weird. Yes. Yeah. I, I, I mean, it's definitely not ideal. Right. Um, but the thing is, is this, this came out talking to one of the security guys that had been there for a few years. And again, this goes back to, you got to feel for the developers that are not given the time to actually go back and fix stuff, right. From a security perspective. And it all kind of is driven by the fact that the people that own the applications or the business owners don't recognize um, security as a real like threat or risk to the business, to the money that's actually coming in from what they've built previously. And so they continue on, they continue on. And that security backlog, that security debt, tech debt that exists just builds and builds and builds until it becomes untenable to actually fix. Right. Um, and I mean, that's one of the things that, you know, this, this organization to their credit is trying to change that, that mindset. They've realized that this is not sustainable, but now there's this huge problem in the room of how do you, how do you take something that, that that's that far out of date, update it for modern standards using secure packages and get to a secure state in a reasonable amount of time for a reasonable amount of money. Yeah, I, I don't think it, it, reasonable is going to come into play when you do because like something like this is um, a massive rewrite. You know what I mean? Like it's not a small. Yeah. It, it's not nothing's going to be considered reasonable by a business owner in that at this stage, right? Fifteen years later, which is a good argument for like incremental pauses to tackle tech debt. But yeah, obviously it's a little late for that with them. Um, but I think their expectations kind of 
in that case, you, you just, you have to modify your expectations. It's not going to be reasonable. It's going to yeah. be overly expensive. It's going to suck. It's going to take a long time. Um, and you're going to have to do it because, yeah. you know, eventually that's well, and, not going to no, work they, anymore. They do. Well, and that's just it. That's, that's part of the reason that, you know, I've, I've started right, to, right. to become involved with them, right? Is because they've realized it's a problem, but it's also because their customers started to demand, hey, we want to know what's going on with our, like, with the data that we are providing to you, right? Like we're using the service um, and all of a sudden they're realizing that stuff's not getting patched or they're seeing, you know, problems that have existed for, you know, 10 years that, you know, all of a sudden it calls into question what their program actually looks like. And, you know, at that point it finally is is bubbling up to the business as, Oh crap. If we don't do the security stuff, we're not going to keep these clients. Right. Like it, it seems like we don't ever, make that connection until the risk is a business risk, not just a pure security risk. Right. Um, and the, you know, the business risk comes into it, but I, I feel like there's been miscommunications in this organization, you know, not to the guys that are there now, but in previous, you know, previous security iterations, right. To your point that they failed to properly communicate what the threat and the business risk was of not performing security actions of not doing the crocs and socks of security and, you know, keeping things up to date, giving your developers time to do this because now, now, and now they have to pay that, pay the piper. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, that's, you know, but it, it, you know, that is the thing too, is it like, you, yeah, you, you have to, you have to have to advocate, but sometimes the business just doesn't, want to do it and and it's always like did i advocate well enough and if you know if you didn't get what you wanted you think you didn't but sometimes it's just a business decision mm-hmm. but that's how that's how how it goes sometimes yeah. um but anyways um yeah i don't know like did you want to did you want to go into there's a couple a couple articles that are based off of like essentially i, I think one's useful from a couple perspectives, knowledge, but also like potentially as you're crafting attack payloads or like running into here, I'll just post it. Um, well, repost it. Rick, Rick had uh, originally posted this. So let me just put it back into general. Uh, actually, here, let me put it on the YouTube portion first and then, yeah. Oh, cookie bugs uh, repost in slack yep cookie security so, is so so interesting but yeah go ahead it is well no no i was yeah actually that's what i was gonna say is like it's so it's interesting because of like you know i think the thing that actually um i was surprised by is the empty cookie um from this list that that was the one thing that actually did surprise me was uh not having a cookie name uh at all was possible um so i don't know like I probably knew that and forgot, but, um, you know, man, you know how it goes after a while, you just, you retain stuff and then some stuff you just, you just lose. Um, but anyways, that, that was interesting. I know that, um, someone had mentioned in the channel that they were not familiar with, uh, cookie prefix prefixes. So yeah, you've got a host and secure, um, prefix for cookie naming, uh, conventions does exactly like which, what you would imagine. Um, let's see what else is interesting off this list. Uh, the Chrome stuff, I guess is pretty interesting. Definitely useful for the, like for the Chrome bug, the Chrome bug. And at least like for a little while, the Chrome bug and the empty cookie name value, I could see that coming into play when you're doing a test and you need to do some sort of bypass or I don't mm-hmm. know, some sort of wonkiness, um, that could be use- useful. Uh, because the text we got page, yeah. Cookie Anything injection. you sticks out for you? Yeah, cookie smuggling. Um, like I always liked using cookies for, um, like platform identification too, right? Like you, you know, oftentimes we can't necessarily we don't. We've now suppressed information about what the platform is behind the scenes, right? Um, as far as like what the the architecture is that's actually running an app, um, but a lot of times you can tease that out pretty quick by what the cookie names uh, are, right? Like you know, ASPX Net 
cookie ID or whatever it is, right? Like it's, it's pretty telling that there's a .NET application behind the scenes. Um, some of them are more subtle than that. Um, but yeah, the, the, the browser behavior drives a lot of this, um, which is why I, I'm, I enjoy seeing the, the actual research, uh, research behind the scenes on testing out how the different browsers perform and what they actually do. Cookie smuggling gets to be pretty interesting too with the, you know, the semicolons at the end. Um, yeah, just because the way that header parsing actually happens, right? Did um, you, yeah. Did you see the, the, the Zope um, mentioned there? I've never even heard of Zope. It's like a Django, or excuse me, Python, Python. Uh, framework. If you hadn't heard of it, I'm curious if anybody, if, can you put it in, if you have used this, please pop into uh, Slack and say that you've used it and, and provide an experience if, if you feel so inclined, because uh, I've never heard of it. And that's interesting because I've heard Jetty. I, we've all heard yeah. of Jetty, Tomcat, Undertow, but Soap I've never heard of. Hmm. Pyramid. Yeah. It's similar. Oh, Plone, right? Okay. So is it Pyramid related? I mean, I have heard of Plone before. Hmm. Yeah, a lot of cookie parsing is, yeah, that's such a like per framework um, tech stack library. Yeah, tech stack um, thing. As for like a lot of, honestly, HTTP headers, they get processed in all kinds of different funky ways which is part of your contextual security analysis. Uh, let's see here. Configuration. Yeah, cool. I don't know, man. There, for me, there was nothing else super interesting there. Um, but it was, yeah. it was a good article. It's like, yeah. I mean, nothing other than the stuff we've already mentioned. Um, yeah, it's pretty, pretty useful overall. Um, we had another one um, as well. Sorry, I'm pulling up once again. Going slow as I pull up these links. You want to? Do you want to talk the AI one or bat loader? Which? Yeah, I was gonna. I was thinking about the bat loader one. Um, just real. I mean, you know what? Uh, let's talk about. Let's talk about Rahul. Let's talk about Rahul. Uh, so Rahul. Zade put together a list and I'm trying to find where I put that list, but he put together a list. Can you post that? Yeah. So he just put together a list of reading material. Like it's a pretty comprehensive list of different reading material for different types of AI related attacks. Highly recommend um, going to that repo and just perusing it. Uh, They talk about prompt injection and fiddling as well with just like the general data models. Um, there's like two other maiden categories of attacks at least that I had seen um, and still myself need to read more up on. But uh, yeah, we just wanted to mention that Rahul had put this out and uh, let me give his Twitter name as well. It's the same as his GitHub handle, actually. I think it's just RZA3. Yeah. Well, it, I uh, mean, AI, AI yeah. stuff is... I mean, obviously it's kind of the, it, it's the new hotness, right? Like, you know, everybody, you know, wants to dive all in. Um, and I know we've had some discussions on in Slack about it, right? About how it's going to change what we do on a day-to-day basis, right? If, uh, you know, if a LLM can identify, can actually peruse code for secure code review, right? Like, you know, look for different patterns and anti-patterns and, you know, what, what does that actually look like? How does it change what we actually do on a day-to-day basis? And this isn't, this isn't even like, Hey, we're targeting the AI specifically, which is what Ruhul has put up here, right? Like the different attacks that you can run against an AI system. Right. Um, But from a general, like, Hey, how does it affect my day-to-day as an AppSec person? um, I start to think of, know how things have changed for us over the last 20 years or whatever as it is right like you know initially the the static analysis tools were supposed to solve code review period uh, but they never did right like there's always aspects of 
um, reviewing what's coming out of the AI, whether or not it's appropriate, you know, training it over time or learning to use those systems and learning to, and, and this is where I see it going, right? Like we're going to learn over time how to use AI to improve the processes that we have in place, what we want to want it to identify, uh, right? Like, okay, so like simple patterns in, you know, in Django or whatever it is, like what we can build into us, like a SEMGRIP rule from a fairly easy perspective, right? Like that is probably something that we could train an AI on very easily. Um, but the more nuanced, right? Like authorization checks that are happening in code or in different locations are going to have to be trained. Like those AIs are going to have to be trained over time. Um, and that's where it becomes a, like being able to recognize the patterns that developers use that are required, like the different security controls as they're built out in code and then presenting them to the AI. That's probably more of what we're going to do in 10 years than what we do now. It may not necessarily be that we are looking at code on a day-to-day -day basis, but we are identifying those patterns and then feeding those patterns into the AI model so that it, it can then go out and, do the hard part of parsing through the code on a line by line basis. I don't know. Thanks I mean, for my I, product pitch, bro. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Cause yeah, I mean, basically you're that, that no, it's, that's, that's yeah. the whole point. You're, you're saying patterns I've heard shapes used and yeah. it really comes down to getting some level of, uh, like I said, contextual sort of information that, provides you with direction to go. That's really what you, yeah. what we need. And so I agree. I think it will become a much more informed, much quicker set of tasks for us and allow us to fo focus on the things that, that matter. It's going to take some time, but yeah. that's where I agree with you. I think that's where it's, where it's going, where it's headed. It, it, yeah. And that's really what technology does for us in general, right? Is it, it offloads the tedious stuff, usually the tedious stuff. Um, with the idea being we put our effort into more uh, useful things. Um, you know, I, I don't know if that's always the case, but uh, that is the, the idea anyways. Uh, yeah. Yeah. But well, to go back to Rahul's list there, right. And the, the adversarial attacks um, against an AI, are there any of those that are, I mean, I know you probably haven't been through the full list yet. You haven't read everything, but you know, mm -hmm. what is it that stands out to you when you are when you start to talk about adversarial attacks against an AI? Well, yeah, I mean, the most practical one I've seen is prompt injection, right? So sometimes you're you're getting out stuff that um, is expected, sometimes unexpected. I think prompt prompt injection attacks are the one I'm, I've been spending the most amount of time reading about, trying to wrap my wrap my head around. The other attacks are actually there. Like I said, there's like at least I think four attacks, different types of, uh, let's see, privacy attacks, perturbance text, all stealing risk management, uh, prompt injection, toxicity. Uh, yeah, so there's a few different categories here. Um, I haven't really read up on anything other than the prompt injection related stuff yet. So yeah, what one that gets interesting to me, and I know this is the one that a lot of, uh, companies fear, especially when it comes to copilot is just kind of the privacy, um, the privacy implications of feeding data and code into a, into a, an AI system and then having that exposed. Right. Um, so the, the unintentional consequence of, Hey, here is a code base that does a bunch of stuff. I want you to analyze it for X, Y, and Z, but then the, the model itself takes that code, incorporates what's it, what it finds, and then uses that for subsequent searches and subsequent requests, which means that, you know, other users of that model can then start to pull data out about what, what was used to actually train that model. Right. Um, mm -hmm. And, and that, that has to be the case, right? Otherwise the model is not a continuous kind of learning model. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't necessarily learn the context to your point if we don't allow it to take what we ask it and improve itself over time, right? Um, and so it, it becomes a really interesting problem, right? Like I've seen the prompt in, or the, uh, a couple of those attacks against a, an AI model that'll, you know, it'll tell it, 
it'll give you the prompts that were given to actually create the model itself, right? Like mm -hmm. these are the different play, you know, as you're responding to question, these questions, these are the different rules that are in place for you as a model and what you're actually allowed to respond to, how you're supposed to respond to things, right? That, that sort of interaction, but it also has the limits on what they're actually allowed to be exposed. So it, you know, it gives an attacker an ability to, to do more of the prompt injection behind the scenes. But again, it goes back to that privacy of, hey, what was used to actually train this model? Can we identify what that is? And can we pull that data back out? Because it could potentially have sensitive data, PII in there uh, that could be used by an attacker maliciously, right? Like, I mean, that's one that becomes interesting to me. And I know that's why people have heartburn with Copilot and a couple of the other models that are out there is because we don't know what it's actually going to do with that data after React, even if you put restrictions in place. Yeah. I, I mean, that was just an interesting one that, that, that's been on top of mind for me outside of the prompt injection. Yeah. No, I mean, that's, that's, that's kind of the gist of the, all of these attacks, right? Is that you're, you're essentially harnessing what you're manipulating um, the inputs to the LLM so that it does things that uh, its designers did not intend for, 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 uh, for to, uh, I can't speak to occur. I will say this, I'm going to post this link. Here's a concrete example of, of doing something like that. So the idea is that um, essentially being chat, um, the attack works like if I'm reading this right, I kind of glossed over it real quick, but it sounds like um, I have prompted the AI to crawl a website and uh, provide a link that was on that site um, that is now fed into a user who's in like Bing's chat. Um, it gets posted as like, in this case, I think like a executive or, or laptop sales or something like that. Um, and they say, Hey, could you do me a favor? Can you go to this link? And then the person clicks that link. And then obviously some badness happens. That's kind of the concrete example of, um, you know, what, what just one low level example of what could happen by manipulating and tainting the inputs to, uh, LLMs. So, uh, yeah, yeah that's, yeah, that's super interesting, right? Like you start to think about attacking the users that are using the LLM and what they currently have access to. So, right, like, yeah. It would be an interesting, yeah, like there, there, there's all sorts of new avenues that are opening up and, you know, I'm sure we'll see some good research over the next few it's years. Yeah. I mean, yeah, did you see, like, there's been a bunch of stuff, I can't remember which of the platforms, but I remember one of them, like they had gotten the uh, the source code. They got the, the AI uh, agent to provide them the source code to the AI agent. They also gave them like other stuff that shouldn't have been shown to them um, infrastructure code wise. I, I really can't re recall, but yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's a, t man, if you thought writing secure code was hard before, <laughs> holy <Yeah>. shit, <laughs> you know, I mean, man, what a, what a trip uh, creating a safe AI um, has got to be. And I know that, you know, there's been um, like, uh, what's his face? He was up on, a, I, I never remember his name. Um, Altman uh, was, <laughs> was up, uh, you know, asking for regulation and all of that. Um, yeah. Which was interesting too, because apparently, uh, if I'm not mistaken, like, I think he admitted like he doesn't have like stock options and doesn't take like much of a salary or anything like that, just enough to cover some bills. Something like that. I don't know. I was like, that's a whole other thing I don't want to go off on. But I was like, what? <laughs> Anyways, like, well, I just do it because I love it. Well, anyways, uh, yeah. So it's got to be a hard problem to solve is all I'm trying to say. I know that there's a company that won the Innovation Sandbox, uh, I believe Hidden Layer. That's uh, that's their whole thing. They're trying to mm -hmm. uh, tackle that. I think we talked about it post RSAC. But uh, yeah, Mm, tough problem to solve. So it should be very interesting over the last, the, the last, the next few years, last few years were interesting, but yeah, the next yeah. few years, years should be interesting as well. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's been like, it's, it all comes from the interest in chat GBT, right? Like it's something that is consumer interactable, right? I guess I should say um, something that, you know, cause AI has been around for a while. Like we've gotten machine learning models, like everything that's been there, but the, the LLMs, the large language models or whatever they call them, right? Like, um, the fact that 
people can now interact with it and are realizing the power behind the scenes, right? Because, I mean, Copilot's been out for a while, you know, like we've, we've had some of these concerns and discussions, but it hasn't loved, risen to, I get more questions from just general um, friends and family that aren't in the tech industry about AI and chat GPT specifically than I've ever had on like any other kind of security topic, you know, within the last six months, right? Like everybody wants to talk about it because they have gone to openai.com and they've interacted with the model and they realize that this model can tell them about their own personal experiences, right? Their own industry, you know, talking to a doctor about like recommendations for drugs and things like that based on, you know, what ChatGPT actually knows and, um, like how well it's doing. Like I've had more discussions that route than I have about any other kind of security topic. And there's a, a general level of uneasiness around AI um, outside of the tech industry. Um, I, I don't know if you've experienced that. I mean, have you had interactions with other people asking you about it? Yeah, it's like the only time anybody thinks anything I do is cool or like, you know. <laughs> That's true. Like, yeah. I mean, it's like, oh, or not cool, but like it's relevant to their interests. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I, I definitely have, and I'm happy. I'm like, yeah, let's talk about computers. Cool. Like, yeah, no, it's, uh, honestly, it's a great segue into, yeah, the, having a conversation about technology, but, uh, yeah. yeah, I've had questions come up about it. What, like, what could go wrong? Isn't it scary? All this stuff. And then you're know, like, well, yes and no. Yeah, yeah for sure. I mean, yeah. there's definitely they concerns, but, um, do I think it's going to be Skynet? Um, not right now. Not yeah. at this moment, but <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know, um, but it's, you know, it's, it's, it's evolving pretty quick. So, uh, but that does remind me, I actually had a moment. I was so proud of this over the weekend. I, uh, for once, the one time these damn skills that we've spent decades acquiring actually came into it actually were useful in the real world. Uh, for once I was all stoked this weekend. I had to, um, pick a lock cause, uh, temporarily we found the keys but we had lost some keys and i was like all right i need to get in this thing so or excuse me for training purposes i picked a lock <laughs> anyways because i live where i live but anyways um for training purposes i picked a lock and it was really awesome it like popped it you know in under 20 seconds i felt so cool i was like <laughs> i'm a total badass it's like no it's like dude decades of sitting at this desk and going to these conferences and like doing all this work and uh you know, acquiring all these skills and reading all these books and learning all these these things that are never applicable in the real world. Nobody cares about, or at least it feels like that, right? And then finally, I had my moment after 20 years. Yeah. Finally 20 had my years. moment. Finally <laughs> it had totally your took moment. 20 years. <laughs> <laughs> For that one time that you went to a conference, learned how to pick locks and realized it. <laughs> Fairly yeah. Easy. yeah yeah yes yes that, that that sounds about right like well yeah, think how right. like what the lock picking lawyer feels right like he goes to law oh, yeah. school does all this stuff and what is he known for picking logs on picking locks. youtube right you know yeah. <laughs> uh, hey but man it feels good when it's actually useful and it's not yeah. just some like hypothetical you know thing yeah. skill so yeah anyways it's nice it's cool yeah it's fun cool and I, I recommend everybody train themselves on pick, uh, lock picking. Yes. Yes. That's a, it's a fun thing to do. Um, Actually, you know yeah. what? On that note, we're talking about it, and I just haven't put it away yet. My son's training pit, actually, believe it or not. Um, yeah, they sell like, these clear locks with the pick sets that you can learn to, yep. you know. Uh, so, yeah. You, can make a, you, you know this, Seth. I'm just saying for other people who have never done this stuff and messed around with it. If, if you're watching and you have never restaurant that they sell they're cheap they're on like amazon yeah and if you, i mean if you want to get into it i'm going to post tool um yeah tool.us right uh p-o-o-l-l the organization of organized lock, open organization of lock pickers that's what it is but you know they have you know instructions on how things are put together and it's I, you know it's a fun little like puzzle to solve right if anyone's interested in it um yeah let's see we've been going for a good hour i know there's always more stuff to talk about we'll leave a lot of that until next week uh please join us on slack um again there's a lot of conversation that's going on there that you know at this point isn't necessarily driven by ken and i a lot of the articles that we're starting to pull from nowadays are different you know talos and others that are in larry and others that are in the pod or in the slack channel are actually posting 
Um, so, uh, and there's more stuff. They've got lots of questions like we recommended to Gigabin to jump on and ask about different products, different um, use cases, jump in and do that. Um, yeah, Ken, anything else that you want to cover before we wrap things up for today? No, just appreciate everyone's support. Sorry that we haven't been around much, but uh, we are, you know, I think, well, I don't know, you're saying you're going to Madrid, but for the most part, I think we're we're around for the most part. Um, yeah, barely, that, that, barely. that one's, it's going to be shorter than I wanted it to be, right? Like I was hoping yeah. to be there for a little while, but it's going to be a fly there, give a talk. I'll only have like a day turn around and then I'll be back. So, yeah. That's not very fun. But all right, I get it. <laughs> you just came back fun. from Europe, so you might as well go back or not. Go go yeah, back again. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, we'll go back for a day or two couple days, whatever. <laughs> um, yeah, let me see. What else? Um, yeah, that's uh, that's about it for now. Um, I know there's going to be other conferences. Please, if you have a conference that you would like to see the code review training at or would like us to speak at, let us know. Um, we do want to do some of the live shows at different conferences and actually do panels. That was really fun at CactusCon. We got a couple other proposals out there to do the same sort of thing at other conferences just to, you know, spur community involvement, but also to talk about the state of application security. Like that's the idea is we want people's opinions on where things are going, like talk about chat GPT, or if you have recommendations for guests that you would like to see on the podcast, um, hit us up. Um, we do have Evan, I know is scheduled. We're going to have Shlomi back on soon. Um, there's a few other people that are in the works as well. And yeah, would would just love to, you know, continuing, continue to grow the community and the discussion that we're having. Absolutely. Cool. All right. Well, um, yeah, with that, uh, we'll see everybody next week. Um, and yeah, go secure all the things. At least for this Thanks. week, right? Okay. Thanks, everyone. Ciao. All right. Later. Bye.